On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, we have Scott Steinberger. Scott is the president of PCI Race Radios. He is an off-road racer. His dad is uh, was the original weatherman. Scott has taken that title now. And we're going to talk about Scott, Bob, and PCI Race Radios. So, Scott, thank you so much for coming on board and uh, spending some time with us. Thanks for having me, Rich. So let's jump in right away. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, that you were born in, and raised in Southern California, but want to get a little more specific? Cypress, California. Um, people ask where's Cypress. It's close to Anaheim and right next to the Los Alamitos racetrack. Excellent. And when you were growing up, was it still pretty rural? Uh, when I was a kid, there was still a lot of strawberries around here. Yes. And as a kid, did you, uh, did you find your way into those strawberry fields when, uh, <laughs> and picking strawberries? Oh, yeah. when it we, was a- we, 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 uh, we, we kind of, you know, ran everywhere and there were a lot of fields and the, the ones that we ended up being in was the ones they let fallow for a few years and they get tall weeds in them and we'd build forts in the tall weeds. Nice. And, was it a, a youth of riding bicycles um, to start off with, or did you uh, were you able to uh, start with uh, like motorcycles? No, it was bicycles. Uh, my father had a thing against motorcycles. You know, he um, he dealt with the 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 score, you know, weatherman thing for so long, and and motorcycles were always uh, getting people hurt. In right. his opinion, yeah. I, I kind of grew up the same way. My mom lost a couple of friends right in high school and after high school um, on motorcycles, and so she forbid it. But I just, I'd hide one. You might say at a friend's yeah. house. So let's uh, let's explore those early years a little deeper. The school that you went to was it nearby? Yeah, I went to Cypress High School. Okay, and my kids go to my kids. My last child is still in it. He's a, he's a junior at Cypress High School, just started a few days ago. Wow. A legacy then, huh? The whole family. Yeah. PCI was in Signal Hill for, from 81 to 2017. And then we moved to Cypress. So I basically have my business in my town. In fact, one of the old strawberry fields we used to play in is where PCI is at. Oh, nice. I, I knew that you were, you know, I'd, I'd been to the Signal Hill. I hadn't, uh, I haven't been over there to the new store yet. Oh, yes, I have. I have. It's the big warehouse. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So with going to school there and stuff, how were you as a student? Were you, you know, were you studious? (laughs) I got by. (laughs) You got by. That's right. That's the most common answer. (laughs) Yeah. Do you, like, my my grandson is starting eighth grade um, this next Monday up in Idaho. And, you know, the fifth, sixth, and seventh, he's not been real motivated. And I, I keep telling him, you know, you got five more years. You know, these are the most, the next five years are the most important for you to figure out what you want to do and where you want to take it from there. Because he's got all these grand plans of of racing and rock crawling and, you know, having this, having that. And I said, you know, if you just screw off, you know, you're not going to get there. Those things are just not going to show up unless you put work in. Um, do you try to do you try to instill that in in your kids? 
Uh, my kids, I have three kids now working at PCI and they're doing really well. Um, I would say my kids were a little spoiled. I think we, I think we get, I was spoiled and I think my kids were a little spoiled and I wish I would have probably, uh, instilled education as a more, um, a bit larger factor in their lives. And we didn't, they came straight to work. Like I did, I did the same thing. I came straight to work and, you know, while I think the networking of college is a neat thing and I think it helps you in life, uh, there's something to be said about getting to work and learning your business and, and, you know, learning to plug holes and, 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 you know, take care of what needs to be taken care of. The nice thing about a family business is I got three kids that, you know, I've had employees move on over the years and, you know, your kids, they might move on, but I feel like I'm investing smart investment in them. Right. In their future. And as, as, they take over yeah. the business. No, I agree 100%. Okay. It, it, that, that does make sense for, for a business, especially like yours, since it is, you know, been such a family business. So has, I know that in, and this is probably jumping way ahead, but as far as PCI is concerned, has, have you been approached by any of the, oh, what do you want to call it? Conglomerates, guys that have, you know, there's, there's all these, these businesses that are becoming conglomerates, um, family-run businesses being bought up and, and you know. Hedge being, funds, yeah. yeah. hedge funds. Have you guys been approached that way? Um, I've had a few people talk to me. I, uh, you know, the legacy part of it, you know, I feel like my dad started this and it gave me a great place in life. And, and I feel like I need to give that to my kids as well. Um, so. Excellent. You know, but one thing that happens that's different is, is that when my dad retired in 2000, we had five employees and it was a much smaller footprint. And now we have 50. And, you know, when the economy starts to do funny things, it's, it does, you know, it does make me think more. Right. <laughs> like, you know, and I had a little bit of a medical issue earlier in the year and it made me think about mortality a little more. And, and, um, you know, I, the bigger you get, the harder you fall, they say. And so far, it's been nothing but up for PCI. And I have a great crew here that does a great job. And um, we're in a great industry that's growing fast. Um, and, you know, at first, COVID really worried me. But uh, COVID just showed that everybody wanted to be more outdoorsy. And, you know, off-road blew up in COVID. And it's been really, you know, it was a good time for my business, although the uncertainty of COVID has made it challenging, especially with, I think, kids at school, you know? Absolutely. Yes. And and the way that the education uh, boards have been running, you know, the mask mandates and everything else like that, uh, you know, it, and closed, not, you know, teachers basically not wanting to go back in the classroom to teach. And I get it, kind of. Um but you know it's it's a it's a shame because the kids that tried to graduate over the last you know in twenty and in two thousand and twenty one really you know it, it their remembrance of those last two years of high school or the last year of high school is going to be so much different than than their peers just a little older or younger than them. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, it's. I think it's atrocious what's happened with COVID. I mean, don't go, don't let's not go there. But you know, the biggest thing that came out of COVID was the excuse of COVID, and I think um, using COVID as an excuse all the time is one of the factors that just piss me off about it. I mean, you know, oh, let's just blame it all on COVID. We don't have product because of COVID. We don't have this because of COVID. It's because everybody stopped doing their damn jobs. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things I'm proud of. The PCI has always been able to keep stuff in stock, but it's, it's been a challenge with some of our vendors. And, um, you know, I, the world went crazy. I mean, it sure did. It's been, it's amazing that that in our industry that the companies um you know offroad did did really well um in 20 and 21 financially for the most part i think that like you said the supply train issues um which you know getting getting the parts from vendors and the vendors those vendors having the material to make the parts um, some of the people that I've talked to, we, you know, I've come to the conclusion that it's, that we got to a point with our businesses where people could order it and we could turn around and make it right away. So we didn't carry as much stock on the shelves, like probably some of your vendors did. And then when, when COVID got really rolling and all of a sudden companies couldn't produce the products that were needed, those vendors started to suffer because they didn't have stock on hand. They weren't, you know, deep on the shelf. Do you think that's going to change people's attitudes now is, you know, stocking up on materials before, before they, uh, they have an issue or do you think it's still going to go back to the same way where, Oh, we got a week, we can produce it and then send it out. Well, you know, we were blessed. We had the cash on hand to be able to really go deep on product. And at one time, we could get away with carrying 90 days worth of product. That's not how it works anymore. So we've got to carry a year worth of product on hand so that we don't ever run out of anything because it takes that long to resupply some of it. And, um, you know it's just not uncommon for stuff to get pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. And, you know, I, I went to pick up my wife's car yesterday at a car dealership and, you know, they only had maybe eight or 10 cars on the lot to sell. And they, the amount they wanted over sticker for the cars was unbelievable. And it's, I I don't like paying that. Like nobody likes paying that, but, but, uh, you know, I think that's, the car industry's excuse is just, you know, the dealerships are getting away with it. They can't get the cars, so they're having to sell them for more. And I kind of understand the economics of that, but you know, it's, I can't believe that it all comes down to, we can't get a chip, you know, (laughs) there's gotta be more to it. (laughs) True. Supposedly there's thousands and thousands and thousands of, of vehicles sitting there complete, except for missing the computer chip needed for the the PCM. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's 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 crazy. And supposedly, you know, how did Lawrence not have GPS? They had, they're selling GPSs. They got chips in them, and there's chips in all these different things. And it just doesn't make sense to me that 
you know, a car doesn't have a chip it needs. <laughs> Maybe they should invest in infrastructure of chip manufacturing. <laughs> <laughs> True. Well, there are some big manufactured chips things going in in, in Arizona, that's for sure. Um, there's a nice. couple of big, huge buildings that, uh, that got some friends that are, you know, supplying either concrete or working concrete, that kind of thing on these, these foundations for these buildings that just cover, you know, it, it looks like a, mi- a square mile. So we'll see. Wow. We'll see. Hopefully we can bring all that stuff in country now. So did you, uh, did you have a chance to play sports as a kid? I played soccer for a little bit and I, I played sports, but, um, you know, my dad wasn't around on the weekends to go to sports because he was off at races. And, uh, when I was 12, I started going with him and, uh, you know, I'd go out to the races and get a do contingency and meet the racers. And then we'd go up on a mountain on race day and we'd do communications. So let's, let's talk about some of that, um, those early days of being at the races and stuff, what was, what was the biggest draw for you besides being able to spend time with your dad? What did you look forward to on those race days? You know, one of the things that we do about being weatherman and we do it even more nowadays is, you know, where we go up on top of these mountains, sometimes it's a little unforgiving, but for the most part, it's serene and beautiful. And I mean, going up on top of the mountain Diablo and we get there three or four days ahead of time to set ourselves up and, you know, we camp out and we relax and we, you know, eat good food and we have a good time. And it's, it's, it's really neat. And the one thing that I really, really enjoy about it is the stars. The stars on top of Diablo are incredible. And I mean, it's like, it's like a light show every night. Yeah, I guess there's not a lot of of pollution in the sky at that point, so it's nice and clear. Yeah, very very small glow from San Felipe area, but yes, it's a very dark place. That's why they say the observatory does so well there. Excellent. And that was one of the questions my, my wife had. She goes, okay, make sure you ask Scott about getting up onto the mountain and, you know, what, what that's like. So you, you kind of touched on it. You guys bring enough supplies up there to, to sit back and, you know, do your work, but also enjoy, you know, good food and, and the camaraderie of the people that go up there. How, how many, how many people make that trek say for the thousand? Once in a while, we'll take someone extra with us, like social media or something, but generally it's just a uh, weather Ralph Barrera and myself and, uh, it gets a little tight in the motorhome with three people. Um, and, uh, he's the workhorse, of the operation. He is, uh, always figuring out ways to get the antennas up higher. And he's, uh, you know, he kicks ass as far as really, really doing a good job for people on the weatherman relay. And we do it in Spanish now as well. And, uh, you know, we usually go up on a Tuesday, um, We'll go to Melling Tuesday night, and we'll spend the night at Melling, which is halfway up. It's like at kilometer 54, heading up the observatory road, San Telmo Road. And then uh, the next morning, we'll get up, go up to the observatory, check in with the observatory, show them our paperwork, get up on our mountain spot, which is a little different than where my dad used to do the relay. We're a little farther down. We're pushed down a little another mountain range. And when we pushed down there, um, at first, it was really, really... A, 
it took away some of the range of our relay because we couldn't get our antennas as high. And it took us a few years to, you know, build some towers and, and, you know, basically figure out ways to make the antennas as tall as they used to be. And, uh, now that we do that, we have pretty good comms, um, from the observatory. We can, we can reach Ensenada before the comms come up at the race. Um, but as soon as a lot of saturation sets in and a lot of people start talking on the radio, we lose Ensenada and we have to set up a relay. We set up a relay in Ojos. Um, in fact, we had a great Ojos relay, Jer, that, that, um, that helped out for a lot of years. He passed away last year and uh, that's been tough on our relays. And, um, but we, we always have, we always have good volunteers that help and they, you know, they fit into different areas where we have, you know, range issues. We got Weatherman South, James Coates, and, you know, we've got, uh, Red X Relay helps us here and there. We've got a lot of the Mag 7 and Baja Pits guys give us a hand, fill in range gaps. And then with that said, the advent of satellite communications has really filled in a lot of gaps. I mean, we don't need to help as many people as we used to because people have their own communications that they can get through on now. And uh, we're kind of just helping out with the infrastructure of the race more and, you know, helping people know where their cars are at and stuff. The relays changed a little bit in the last few years with technology. Now we're using internet and we have voice over IP phones going to the is going to score so we can the same phone I'm talking on to you now I can talk to score ops on and we have message boards so wives and girlfriends at home can see what's going on and watch the race and be part of it as well so it's it's not the whole thing is morphed into with along with technology um I know that we just we just went with the Starlink and it really changed what we could do, you know, because we live on the road. We we constantly are moving mm-hmm. to do events, so we don't have a base of operations like a home that we go back to. So it's always been a challenge whether or not we could communicate with the outside for events, um, and and that's really changed. And are you guys – so that's helping you guys as well? So we have a Starlink and we haven't used it at a race yet. Uh, we, we did some testing with it and we will have it at the, the 400 in a few weeks. Um, we had satellite internet dishes that were very limited and very slow. Um, they basically had 15 to 20 down and one to three up. And those dishes allowed us to stream the live stream, but very, very weak. And for about the last five years, Rodriguez Communications out of San Quentin, um, we hired them to beam internet up to us via um, microwave. And so we've had pretty strong internet on the observatory. Um, The Starlink, this will be our first time using Starlink uh, along with Rodriguez Communications just to see how how it works. And and, uh, I'm looking forward to it because it's, from my testing, it's way better than what we've had in the past with satellites. Way easier as well. It would take hours to set up the satellite dishes and aim them and point them and get them working. And now Starlink, you just open a box, set up an antenna, and you go. 
yeah, within 10 minutes, you're, you're up and running. Yeah. So do you think that is going to, we are, we're like way beyond where I wanted to be, but we're going to, we'll get back to the other stuff since we're on, on pace with this now. Do you think that the better communication, um, live, being able to live stream from various places on the racetrack and all that is going to make off-road racing, especially score Mexico, um, but even here in the States, going to make it more popular with maybe the mainstream? Um, you know, because once you get outside of Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, Southern California, people, you know, don't – it's not as strong as, as an influence. Off-road racing is not as strong an influence as it is in those those areas. Do you think it'll help with that? I definitely think it'll help. I thought it was pretty interesting. I, I watched some of Bryce Menzies' live feed from the Vegas Arena race a few days ago, and it was pretty impressive with his Starlink setup. And I think that's going to only make the – it's going to make it easier and better to make good content. You know, but, you know, King of the Hammers does a great job already, and they've really forwarded off-road racing as far as bringing in – more people from across the country because rock crawling was kind of more of a nationwide thing, actually a worldwide thing. And I think them, them bringing people to King of the Hammers really grew off-road racing the last few years. And that's one of the bigger, you know, push pushes on it. But I do think it'll get more and more popular. Um, you know, uh, how do you get involved in off-road racing is a good question to bring up. And, you know, that's kind of how my dad got involved in racing. So my father was uh, off-roading. He was actually going varmint hunting, and he decided to build a vehicle that was more capable because he'd gotten stuck a few times and broke down. So uh, in Long Beach, where his business was at the time, which was called Phone Consultants International, he uh, hooked up with a Bill Strop Motorsports who did a few cars for the Baja 1000 type racing, but he was basically building my dad a hunting vehicle, which was a 65 Scout. And my dad grew a relationship with Bill Strop over the years, became really good friends. And Bill asked him, hey, we need some help at the 1972 Vol 1000. Would you come down and help us? We need to dump some fuel at Santa Rita, you know, at mile... 800 and something on the Baja 1000 course. And I said, Oh, I'll do that. I'll try that. So my dad went down and my dad said he waited for two days and almost left. Car came in, was in his pit for less than a minute, took two dump cans of gas, wiped off the windshield. And they were like, it was the most boring thing I ever did, Scott. I was just like, we were ready to leave. We had no, we didn't know what was going on. And when he got back, he was telling Strop how bad it was. And he says, you guys need communications. We need to know what's going on. So Bill's like, uh, you think you could put radios in the cars? And back in the seventies, we're talking tubes in the radios, the you know the glass tubes and stuff. Right. So there was, it was, you know, it was pretty old school. And my dad says, yeah, I think I can make it work. So my dad, over the next few years, started figuring out how to hold the tubes in so they wouldn't bounce out when you were off roading. And and uh, you know, he got a few cars up and running with communications, and 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 it and it started to grow. And you know more and more people started using his communications. And in 1974 at the mid 400, he decided to put up a radio relay. And, uh, at the time he hadn't done any relay, so he didn't know what he was doing. 
and it was his first attempt and he ended up getting three weather balloons tying the weather balloon the antenna to the weather balloons and putting the antenna up with helium over the main pit area and he had a 500 foot spool of coax and he put his antenna up and um someone couldn't remember his name and needed some radio help and we hear it was Joe McPherson. <laughs> Who knows? But uh, Joe McPherson couldn't think of my dad's name and called him the weatherman, and that kind of name stuck. And my dad continued to use that moniker, you know, his whole life. Right. It's it's a it's an icon, absolutely an iconic title in uh, in off road racing. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I got to say that's one of the my proud 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 son thing you know i got a picture of my father in my office and uh he he, uh you know nowadays with satellite communications i feel like we still do a good job and we help a lot of people but you you got to really listen to people that were racing early on and you know to talk to someone um that actually was stuck out in the desert and they were there and they didn't know what the hell was going on and their crew didn't know where the hell they were at. And, and the only person you could talk to was my father. And I have multiple, multiple friends that said, Hey man, I was a scared kid. I was at my first race. I was stuck out in the middle of nowhere and your dad saved my life. And, um, you know, just because, you know, I can remember one of my first races in Mexico and I was stuck out in the desert and, uh, you know, having someone to talk to is a big deal when you when you start hearing noises. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> true enough. <laughs> Look, yeah, the, uh, the I I when I first started going down to to Baja for the thousand was in two thousand and three, and went down with BFG Pits, and we were. We all had radios in our in our vehicles, and as we're caravanning down and peeling off teams at their or peeling off the pit teams at their specific sites, you know, uh, Frank D'Angelo is you know is talking to everybody. You know, he he kind of ran the show. You know, he was the general, um, and it was it was comforting when you're in a big group like that going down for the very first time. You know, I had never been down to Mexico before, um, never into Baja. And it was, uh, it was quite of an experience, but the communications for dealing like with that for like BFG pits is incredible. Um, you know, each one of those pit locations has a radio guy, um, somebody that's a pit captain, somebody that's running a fuel board that's keeping track of where the team's left who the teams, you know, and commu- with the communications guy, you know, so there, we know who the next vehicle to come in is supposed to be. And, uh, you know, being able to hear the team, you know, five miles out, if possible, was a big advantage because, you know, guys would drop out of the race. And if the, the person wasn't listening, you know, that was doing the fuel board, wasn't listening to the radio guy operator, you know, you you could have the wrong fuel cans filled when the when the car shows up and be trying to you know you're thinking Rod Hall's coming in, so you got can you know cans of diesel, and all of a sudden you know it's a it's a late trophy truck that's coming in, and uh, you know you got to dump the diesel, reload the gasoline, 
and it became kind of a, a hassle unless somebody was really paying attention. So communications, you know, on that end was very important. Yeah. Yeah. It's, they do a, they do a tremendous job too. And, you know, people, people don't realize, you know, there's always been different manufacturers, entire manufacturers that have been down in Baja, but none of them have done what BFG has done. And I don't think people realize, um, just their, their maps and their, and their, their detail orientation to making it easier to get to the pits. I mean, hell, when you go down there, it's hard to find anything down there without knowing what's going on and having a map book that shows you what kilometer to turn onto this road and they go out with ribbons and mark it all so you can find your way to the pits. It's unbelievable what they do. In fact, you know, I always tell everybody I run on BFG tires because of it now. And, and, um, you know, if you, if you're buying tires, you should be on BFG because you're going to get pit support and, you know, a, a team that has really, probably spent more money than any other team to further motorsport safety. True. True. I, when, when I was working with pistol Pete, you know, he always, he was not on BFG, but man, it was always, you know, how are we going to get one of those BFG pit books so that we could, (laughs) (laughs) we could get our, our pit crews to where they needed to be during the race. And, uh, you know, it's, it was, <laughs> it was almost like an I spy type of a, a situation, you know, <laughs> I yeah, told it's, Frank it's, and it's Nate like, that. <laughs> it's like cheating. It, it really is. Having that book is like cheating. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about, about you personally. Um, you know, you went to high school in, you know, where your kids are going now, um, or have gone and, you jumped into work when you were 12 going to, to the Cypress, races. I went to Cypress college, but I'll just say okay. I went there. Let's say okay. that <laughs> <laughs> I did not graduate from there, but uh, yeah. And, and I, and I started working, you know, when I was 14, I started coming in and working at PCI, um, helping out, cleaning up around the shop, uh, learn, you know, learning, making coins out of solder. It's fun stuff. And, um, <laughs> You know, I, back when I first started at PCI, we were still a communications company that dealt mostly with car telephones and two-way radios. So in the eighties, it was still more car telephones, two-way radios. It was, it wasn't as, it, it was racing, you know, four or five times a year, but it was just a small part of our business. And, um, you know, one of the first things that I did when I started working there was I started realizing that, Hey, we got all these people sending us helmets from Parker pumper at the time and Gordon Clark at cactus racing and BDR. And they were sending helmets to us that customers had bought to get wired for radios. And I'm like, you know what, maybe we should carry helmets. So I would buy lots of helmets from them and have them in stock, ready to go wired up and ready to go. So it was one less step you had to take when you were buying a helmet. So over the years, people started coming to us for helmets and uh, I think to this day, we still have the largest stock of wired helmets uh, ready to go. You know, we have thousands here. Um, but, uh, you know, 
back in the small business days, I tell this to my kids because my kids are pretty spoiled. I'm like, do you understand that I had to work, you know, from 8.30 to 5.30 at the shop. And then at 5.30, when everybody went home, the employees went home, I would stay at work and wire up extra helmets and take care of things so we'd be ready for the next day. And um, I always remember how racers are last minute. And we sell, <laughs> we would always sell a lot of helmets at the last minute. And I'd be the week before the race, I'd be up half the night, you know, wiring helmets for people because they, uh, we, we just didn't have enough done and, and we needed more and more and more. And, and, uh, you know, now, now the amount of helmets that go through here, it's, it's incredible. I think we have six or seven helmet technicians now. And, uh, my son races in the department. He's doing a great job wiring up helmets. Uh, but I used to have to do every one that came through here and it was, it was a job. <laughs> so your, your kids names, you have, your oldest is Ryder. No, my oldest is Sierra. Oh, Sierra. So I have Sierra and then, uh, Ryder is in sales and marketing here. Okay. And then, uh, races and tech department. He's, uh, doing helmets and working on radios. And then my youngest rangers in high school, he's worked here part-time a little bit, but uh, he's still on the spoiled side. So no Bob's, Scott's, Bill's, Brian's. I love the names. That's awesome. Yeah. it. Yeah. My wife calls them R1, R2, and R3. <laughs> so <laughs> That's great. <laughs> So when you uh when you were working there first working at 14 um wiring up helmets and stuff when race day would come around or the you know those five times a year like you said what was the what was the process of getting ready for that race um and contingency like so so back then it was easier because we just throw a few things in the trailer and we had a little like tent trailer that had a cap on it with a PCI logo and we would jump in my dad's 65 scout and we would head to tech and we would, you know, open up a little trailer and we'd help people and sell radios. And, and, uh, you know, then after tech was over, we'd just drive straight up to the top of the mountain and we'd set up our radios and we'd be doing late night radio tests and we'd be up the next morning whenever the race started to get going. And now, now I go straight to the top of the mountain. I have a crew that's at contingency and tech, um, you know, and now I have it pretty damn good, <laughs> pretty spoiled. <laughs> I got a lot of help and you know, when I, but so, so we skipped one part when I first started at PCI. So then the second part of PCI is when I was 21, I started racing a mini mag. Right. So when I was 21, I would work from nine to five. <laughs> then I would work on helmets until they were done. And then I would have to prep my race car. And then you go to a race and I would have to work all day at contingency and tech. Well, hopefully a few of my friends got our car teched because I couldn't do it because I was too busy working. And then, you know, sometimes tech for us would run until eight, nine, ten o'clock at night finishing the last cars and getting all the comms fixed and going. And then I would have to take care of my team and figure out what we were going to do and, and, and 
get a plan going. And as my dad left to go up on top of the mountain, I'd be getting ready to, you know, race. And, you know, I, I got spoiled myself. I, from when I was full from 1988 until 2007, I raced full time, all races. And, you know, I raced all the score races and I raced some of the best in the desert races. In fact, from 96 until I think 2005, I raced all the best in the desert races. Wow. I was at Casey's first Vegas arena race. And so I was doing score and, um, and best in the desert. It was actually HDRA and score first. And then it was when score bought high, high, de- high HDRA, I moved on to, you know, do both score and best in the desert. And, you know, oh, one of the races I remember, I can't remember what year it was now. And I, I should know this, but I was helping on the radios with my father when Walt Lott passed away at the uh, fireworks 250 race. And back when it was still HDRA was putting on the uh, stateside races. Right. The, I got to play weatherman, you might say, um, Mm -hmm. with, um, Bill Black during the Roger Norman's first HDRA race in Nevada and I uh, went down, my wife and I and the kid that worked for me, Josh England, went and uh, showed up there to to help Roger with whatever he needed. And, you know, he was like, oh, no, just enjoy the race. So we grabbed trash bags and we were picking up stuff. And he's like, oh, I got guys to do that. And I'm like, well, you know, we we have nothing else to do. And your guys are busy putting, you know, all the infrastructure in for the race, you know, picking up the trash out here behind the, the casino. You know, that's 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 a no-brainer. We can do that, you know, without being told how to do it. So we did that, and then he approached me and said, "Hey, you want to be on the radio and help with communications?" And I was like, "Yeah." So we got up to got up into one of the penthouse rooms up there and overlooked the the race course as much as you can there, and it was so entertaining, and we had way too much fun. I think Roger got on there one time and was, you know. He didn't scold us, but he he made a couple of jokes about how uh, how you know we were we probably weren't as professional as we should have been on the radio, <laughs> but it was sure fun. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. You know, it's hard to be professional on the radio all the time, especially when it, it, it's a little bit of chaos out there. And God, my everybody loved my father when he'd go sideways. <laughs> yes. And, you know, they would say, oh, my God, it's so funny when he gets worked up. And I'm all, dude, he's not worked up. My dad gets worked up. That's not worked up. <laughs> he's, he's calm. <laughs> the, the Richard Craniums. <laughs> yeah. So how big of, of an issue was it with being in, in Mexico and having so many people being able to, you know, get on the air and – try and people actually trying to mess with communications. You know, I, so one of the things that's different about my father and myself is, and I think people love my dad for it was he would engage the people that messed with him on the radio a lot. And I feel like if you engage someone, they're teasing you and you're letting it get to you and it makes it want to tease you more. So I try not to, engage them as much. I try to ignore them more, but it is frustrating. I mean, sometimes you just want to, you, you really yeah. want to 
you know, you should get track. I, I had a race recently where we could tell, we could tell the area where the people were because we could hear the cars going by when they were playing with the transmitter and we could hear other people in the background. And I'm like, Hey guys, I can tell that these guys are really close to San Quentin and I would like someone to find them and go rip the mic out of their car and, you know, stick it through their windshield. And, um, <laughs> You know, I actually had people out there, I guess, after the race, they told me they were hunting for the guy. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm glad they didn't find him. <laughs> probably got in trouble. <laughs> no, that's that's good, though, because maybe, uh, maybe t- you know, would teach somebody a lesson. Um, so then the racing with yourself, you raced, you started off with Minimag, and I did see the video that you, you have on your website and on the social media about uh, your your trip to get the chassis. Talk to us about that for those that haven't seen that. So, uh, you know, I've been doing communications and I, I graduated in 86 and in 88, um, I was heading down to Chinneth to go install some radios and some new cars for customers. At least that was the ruse my dad told me. And when I got to Chenneth, they had a car sitting on a trailer for me. And uh, he bought me a Chenneth Minimag. And one of the things my dad really liked about the idea behind the class was that it was a spec class and everybody had the same opportunity. You know, there was no, you couldn't just throw money at it and have a bigger motor or four wheel drive or whatever. And, he thought, you know, this is just a great place to start a driver's class. And, um, you know, I wasn't really, I was mechanically inclined because I was working on radios and stuff, but I wasn't a mechanic when I started racing. And I really think having the single seat car where when you break down, you're, you're by yourself and you have to help yourself. I really think that taught me how to be a, a, a mechanic. And it also taught me problem solving and, you know, I, I took that, I've taken that with me through life and I'm really good at figuring out how to deal with a situation when, with what I have, I can like figure it out. Um, in fact, I was a wide open Baja tours as a guide for years. And actually that came from our racing wide open Baja. And, um, I can all kinds of, you know, repairs in the field that people would scratch their head and go, God, how did you do that? And, uh, you know, wide open was a, I was a guide on wide open and I helped with start wide open. And actually my father and me were part owners of wide open at one time. And I actually met Roger Norman on one of his first trips to wide open, his first time to Baja before he raced. And do you remember that trip? I don't remember exactly. Um, I do remember, you know, the, the, the main guy who started right open, Todd Clement was on the trip as well. And we were just down there having, you know, we were down there having the time of our lives driving cars around. And this was before we had a dedicated tour car. This was back when, so how wide open started, I'll give you a quick story. Absolutely. So wide open started in, I think in 97, Todd and I were racing a pro truck together. And, um, I met Todd when we bought a seven S truck from him a few years earlier, but so Todd and I were racing 1997 together in the pro truck class, which was another driver's class that my dad wanted me to be involved in. And when we were racing, we tried to get Arco 
to sponsor us because you had to run on on regular gas. So we invited four executives from Arco to come on a Baja pre-run trip with us, and we rented a couple Humvees for them. Well, the moral of the story is is that the Hummers got wrecked, but the VPs from Arco said that was the best trip they'd ever had. It was amazing. It was just, it was, they they drove down Rumorosa and they scratched the sides of the cars on the inside of the cliff because they would not go near the edge at La Rumorosa out of (laughs) Mexicali. And they, they, they just had a great time. And Todd's like, Hey, this would be a great business. So at the end of the 97 race season, Todd sold my dad, the pro truck. Thanks dad. And, uh, he took the money and he bought 10 old race cars to start wide open Baja adventures. And from 97 to 99, they ran in old race cars. The problem with the old race cars was logistically, everything was different. The parts, the CVs, the axles, the transmissions, the motors. And when you had problems, you just ended up carrying more and more weight to try to address the problems in the field. Right. So they decided and, you know, 2000-ish that they had to have a purpose-built tour car that were all the same. And that's when investors came in. And I think myself, my dad, Mark Cummings, uh, Rodrigo Ampudia, um, actually Bill Savage, that was a score tech director at the time. Right. And um, a couple members of Todd's family all went in together and put up startup money to build the cars. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I always thought that was a good program. You know, just I see them out there pre-running, and then of course, you know the 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 different businesses that would jump in and race the the BC class. So, yeah, for a lot of years, that brought a lot of people into the sport. I mean, Roger Norman came in, who now it's funny he owns Score and he owns Wide Open, but uh, <laughs> and he, a lot of other things. As a, as a guy on a tour, yeah, he came in as a guy on a tour, and now he, uh, yeah, he 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 he's living the life for sure. He he went off-road extreme. Yes, he did. He's one that I hope to get on here pretty soon. Um, he's a busy guy, so it's it's hard to nail him down. Um, let's talk about the early days um, with your dad and and say Strope, and you know then into uh, Best in the Desert. You know the score in Best in the Desert. What you know he he's running the personal communications. Um, with you know car radios and and phones and that kind of stuff, and then jumps into the off road racing. How much time did it take him to to? I, I can't imagine having to develop and get ready for races like that back then. When when you know when he's the one that's developing all the technology. Well, you, you know, as far as developing technology, the I, I wouldn't say he was developing technology. I would say he was sharing it, but he, you know, yeah, we brought radios into racing. Main thing we've been really good at is we build intercom systems and we still do to this day. Um, he, you know, honestly for years it was seat of the pants. Like, you know, it just people, why do you do it? I don't know. I just do it every race. And, and, you know, we'd go to tech, we'd work at tech. We'd go up on the mountain to help our customers. And, and it, it went from helping our customers to just helping everyone. And, and, um, you know, you, you just do something so long and it's just a habit. 
Right. You can't get away from it. <laughs> you know, people say to me now, everybody asks me, hey, when are you going to go back to racing? I'm like, how the hell can I go back to racing? I'm the weatherman now, and everybody expects me to be up there. <laughs> and, you know, I, I actually, I do feel, I, I feel good about helping people. Um, I've been involved in a lot of, you know, you know, a lot of incidents where people were helped and, and, um, I've been in some that were tragic as well. And, and, you know, it brings you together. It makes you, it makes you feel like part of the team. I mean, you know, whole group of volunteers that help out with score and, and, you know, that, that I'm personal friends with that, you know, that I've been talking all through the night on the radio with when, when, when the, when the shit's hitting the fan. Right. I want to ask the question, what's the, the craziest thing that you, that you've had to personally deal with while on the mountain without getting into say, you know, yeah. a real tragedy. Cause I know those can be, you know, almost, um, life changing for those around the tragedy, of course. Um, but you know, what are some of the crazy things that have happened without it being tragic? You know, one of the, one of the things that, that I wasn't personally involved with, but as you know, a story my father was involved with was, um, I'd call it advocating. So sometimes, you know, the promoter doesn't want to advocate, uh, resources to something that's not race related. And, you know, what we consider race related is, is, uh, you know, if a race car gets in an accident, scores there to land a helicopter and help them. But when it happens to a spectator, it's not, uh, it's not their number one concern. They have other things going on. And my father was involved with an accident at the Baja 500. And, um, one of my friends, Rick Johnson and his wife were in a head on collision on the highway. And, um, she was ejected from the car and it was really bad. And, um, my father, you know, pushed the resources towards them and got him help. And, you know, it all worked out. But, uh, I would say that, you know, I was one of my proud moments where, you know, I, I, I know for a fact my dad saved her life. Right. It really came to, to hit me that, man, when you're, when you're out there in Baja and there are no ways to communicate with people and get help. It's, it's not like it is here in the United States, you know, especially with cell phones and everything, you know, that it didn't, you didn't have good coverage down there in a lot of areas. And, uh, during the race, you know, you guys are during that, that time that you guys are set up, it, it's real important because when you're not, you know, those, those, those accidents become much more tragic or have the possibility of, of ending badly. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's like you have to, you know, people call it being Baja savvy and you, you learn a respect over time that, Hey, you know what? You're not, you're in a spot geographically that it's not minutes to a hospital. It's hours. And that's if you're lucky. And, you have to, you know, take that into consideration when you race. And, 
you know, there's, there's teams that have helicopters and what an advantage that is. I can tell you, I've had one. It's, it's incredible, but those teams have it a little different because they have a helicopter watching out for them. That's calling out. If anybody's pulling out onto the track, that's calling out. If there's livestock getting ready to cross the course, that's calling out anything that has to do with safety. Also, they usually have a medic in that helicopter. And, you know, if you have an accident or something happens, you know, Johnny Campbell had overwatch most of his career and, you know, he, he used it to his advantage and he won a lot of races, but the guy who's going to go race against Johnny Campbell, that's Joe dirt that has never raced before that shows up in Baja and doesn't respect it. It's the one that, you know, it gets hurt. And unfortunately that's usually what we deal with on weathermen is riders getting hurt. And, um, you know, sometimes it's, it's a spectator that pulled out in front of them. And sometimes it's just, they go down hard and they get hurt. And one of the frustrating things is, is that I have this happen at least once or twice a race where I get a call that it's an emergency and a guy went down really hard and, you know, people are calling me on the radio to say, this guy needs help. And half the time these guys just get up, shake it off, get back on the bike and go. And there's no emergency and they're just tough as hell. And I've got to really figure out the details and ask a lot of questions just to make sure it's really an emergency. And sometimes I feel like, you know, I've even had ones where I thought it was an emergency, then it wasn't an emergency. And, um, I mean, I've had guys that get knocked out cold, wake up 10 seconds later, jump on the bike and go like it, like nothing happened to them. They're that tough. Yeah. Got a friend that, um, he was riding Ironman and went down and actually cut his one of his fingers off and pulled his glove off, realized it, taped it up, put his glove back on, shook the part out, and finished the race. And I always think, you know, you know, what would I have done? You know, I I don't know if I'd have taped it up and continued, you know, but I got to give that guy a lot of credit for, for being able to do that. And that's just a finger, you know, but still, um, some, you know, the, the motorcycle riders are, they're a different breed. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the one thing I, I like to, you know, I always think it's a good idea to have some perspective and, and, you know, I, I remember Kurt LeDuc would get up and talk to new drivers at a lot of the drivers meetings at score and tell people what to expect and what to think about. And, you know, one of the, one of the biggest things that, you know, racers need to know is it's not the car that's passing you. That's the problem. It's the car that's trying to pass him. So when you pull over for a car, you've got to pull over long enough to make sure there's nobody behind him in the dust because the dust is the factor that turns it into, um, danger. Right. We were, we were sitting up in at Mike sky ranch and, um, BJ and Bob were up there as well. They were pre had be pre running when we were up there. We were up, up there with Pete and, some guys came in, Canadians, and they were talking about, you know, how 
this was going to be such an easy race. It was their first time. And I was listening to him and I said, you guys need to take this a lot more seriously because you guys start behind the bikes and then, you know, what starts behind you guys are trophy trucks and the trophy trucks will pass a lot of the bikes and every single one of you guys on, on four wheelers. And the guy was like, oh, no way. And he was running a sport. These guys are running sportsmen. So BJ took these, took two of them out in his, in the pre-runner and went back down the road toward the, uh, the turnoff and then came back and because we were telling him, you know, if you start seeing, you know, like the city lights come up behind you, it's time to think about calling your race. If you're, if you're getting caught at that point, um, and you're, you know, at this, at this point of the racetrack, you need to really think if, if you want to continue. And after BJ took him for a race or took him for a ride in the pre-runner, those guys had a much bigger respect for what they were getting ready to get into for that race. You know, the, how fast they thought they could do it compared to a trophy truck. And then when they got in the pre-runner and realized that that's just the pre-runner. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was lucky enough to get a race trophy truck for a few years and I can tell you being in a trophy truck, not having a helicopter was crazy. I would have races where I would, I was coming up Matomi wash first car on the road and all of a sudden we come up on a bike and the bike doesn't hear us and we're revving the motor trying to get his attention. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, we got to get around this guy. And you know, you got guys breathing down your neck and you want to go, but you got to be safe. And I, I remember, I remember one time my co-driver opened up the tool bag and started throwing sockets at the guy in front of us to get his attention <laughs> finally hits him. And the guy looks back and almost falls over and I get by him. But I mean, that's how close you are. And you're in a, you know, six, 7,000 pound truck and a guy's on a bike and his ears are blown out because he's been listening to the for so long and he can't hear that you're there. Sometimes they actually feel that you're there. They feel the, the rev of the motor in their chest. <laughs> it, <laughs> It's, it really, I don't know, as a race promoter, you know, I, I ran Vora for four years. We didn't have to deal with motorcycles, but we dealt with lap races and slower vehicles out there with, you know, and we didn't have any trophy trucks, but we had some eights and some class ones and tens, you know, guys, um, that were pretty damn fast. I can't imagine what it would, what it's, what it would be like to mix motorcycles and trophy trucks on the same race course during the same race. It's just, it baffles me that, that, that it continues. Um, and not anything against the promoters that are out there doing it. It's just, you know, it, it's the only way to do it, but it, it, it create, it is crazy. Well, you, the, the differences, you, you, you couldn't do it in a lapped race, but, but, you know, I mean, nowadays we're getting up at, you know, four or five in the morning to start the race for the bikes and the cars aren't starting till 10. So there's a big gap between, but you know, the, the trophy trucks have gotten so fast and, 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 and there are a lot of Ironman and sportsman bikes that, you know, you know, they, they just get caught. Right. 
And a lot, a lot of them, when they get caught, they pull off and take a nap because they just wait for the fast guys to get by them and then they take their time. And, you know, one of the things that really makes it safer is nighttime. So nighttime, you can see the lights. The daytime, though, when you're getting passed in the daytime by a trophy truck, it's nothing but danger. Right. And I guess now they have the, uh, the warning systems, but I don't know how yeah, that works. Stella. Yeah. I don't know how that works, how well that works with the motorcycles. But I think it works. I, I, you know, it it works again. It's, it's the motorcycle guy just needs to be savvy enough to realize that it's not the guy that's passing him. that can see him. That's the danger. It's the guy that's trying to pass him. Yeah. So that's, that's where, you know, uh, unfortunately off-road racing is about taking risks and to pass someone in the dust. You have to really take a lot of risks when you're taking those risks. It's not a good idea to be a bike getting passed. True. So let's uh, let's explore your dad's early days. Um, we know that in you know seventy two with the Strope team, but what about prior to that? Was where did he grow up at? Did he grow up Southern California as well? In the valley. In the valley. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He actually um, he grew up in the valley, and and um, he went to USC. He was a Kappa Sigma at USC. Um, he got out of college and immediately started a car telephone two-way radio business into the movie industry that was called Phone Consultants International. A lot of people ask me where the PCI came from. It came from Phone Consultants International. Okay. It's just the initials. But um, he dealt with a lot of people, you know, in the movie industry that that uh, needed communications when 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 they were really expensive and tough, like the average briefcase telephone car telephone in the 70s cost $3,500 so it was a very affluent group of people that he was dealing with and he he did car telephones and two-way radios all the way through cellular in 1981 we moved to a bigger building we, we kind of changed the name of the business from phone consultants international to pci omni inc and uh we we ran under that moniker for a few years and all the while we had PCI race radio. That was just a, kind of like a small division of us back in those days. We had a goal. My father and I have selling 300 radios and intercoms a year into the, into the off-road thing. And that's kind of what we did. And then when I got out of high school in the eighties, 86, later in the eighties, we started carrying helmets and we started carrying more safety gear and we started going to races with support trailers. I think we bought, we bought the old Robbie Gordon trailer in 97, which we still have at PCI. And that's the main trailer we take to the races. And we just started bringing more and more products that people needed to get through tech. So in, in, in 1996, we actually split off from the cellular phone side my uncle Bobby, he ended up taking the cellular phone side, and my dad and myself became PCI Race Radios, just PCI Race Radios. We changed the business name to PCI Race Radios, and that's kind of when we just went into off-road racing only. And then um, my father retired in 2000, and um, I've been running the place ever since. Excellent. When do you see... How many, how many more years until you want to, to step aside? 
do you have do you have a a, a range a range yet <laughs> i had a um i'm I don't know, what am I? I'm 54 years old and I'm really not ready to retire, but I had a, uh, I had a, um, a medical issue earlier this year, right after King of the Hammer, in fact. And, uh, I actually had an aortic tear and, uh, I'm, I'm blessed to be here amongst the living still. And it's kind of changed my, um, it's changed my, attitude towards a lot of things. And one of the things that you don't realize it and you don't, but when you sit on your ass and you work behind a desk all day and you don't exercise enough and you don't eat right, you get fat. And, uh, you know, this is to all my plus size friends that I love start thinking about taking care of yourself. Cause I didn't, and it almost cost me. And, uh, you know, I've since February, since since the deal, I've lost 80 pounds so far. Wow. I've got another 30 or 40 to go, and I'm hoping to be amongst the living for a long time. But it has changed my focus more to my health. And uh, luckily, I have a great team here at PCI that that um, that runs this place. You know, Jimmy and Rhiannon and all my managers, Brian, Lisa, all the great employees here that are in sales and stuff, they really kicked ass and allowed me to take the last six months off to take care of myself. And, um, I'm actually just kind of back and I'm kind of back for the, uh, anniversary party this Friday, but, uh, I'm enjoying being back a little bit. So we'll, we'll see, we'll see what it brings. I don't think my kids are ready to take over yet, but they're definitely being groomed to someday. Excellent. And they'll have, you know, it, 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 Jimmy, I think, is has just always been such a pleasure to, to call and work with. I know he's kind of high up there on the food chain now. So um, he always, whenever I do call him, he just, he goes, okay, here, let me send you over to this person. <laughs> so, but it's it was always nice well, to talk so, to so, Jimmy. <laughs> so one of the things I do like to, you know, I like to bring up is, is you know, loyalty and working hard. You know, um, Jimmy started as a shop hand in the service shop at PCI a long time ago. He's been with me, I don't know, 15, 16, I don't even know. I probably got that one messed up, but he's been here a long time. And he went from basically being a shop hand helping my father to, you know, running day-to-day operations here at PCI. And, you know, he learned it and he's doing it now. And same thing with Rhiannon. Rhiannon, you know... Rhiannon basically figures out a problem and figures out how to solve it. And she's very good at what she does. And she's part of the backbone here at PCI. And, you know, those two, along with a few others, have really helped me be able to, you know, focus on my health and focus on getting better. And I really, you know, I really appreciate them for that. That's awesome. You do have you do have a great staff down there, that's for sure. So you're uh, you got you're down eighty pounds. Um, was it a change of diet and a workout regimen, or what have you what what have you done to do that? Um, I I lost about thirty in the hospital when I first had the incident, and they had me on a feeding tube for three weeks, and I. I lost a lot because of that. And, and, um, 
that kind of, I think, kick-started it and helped me because it shrunk my stomach down to where I could eat a smaller portion. But, you know, I watch what I eat, I count my calories, and I, I've changed to eating healthier foods. Um, I do not eat fast food anymore. I don't go to McDonald's. I don't go to, you know, any any fast food, none. I don't eat any processed foods. I eat healthy foods, and I eat two or three times a day. And and uh, I just watch the calories. And normal dinner for me now is six ounces of chicken or fish and 10 ounces of broccoli. <laughs> nice. Sounds boring, but it's worked for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when it's, when it, when you have that wake up call as you did, um, the aortic yeah. terror, that's, I can't even imagine that's crazy. Um, that, uh, you know, it, it is life changing and, and makes you, you know, reevaluate. And, um, it's, probably something I should be <laughs> be thinking about because, uh, you know, for a long time now, uh, over half my life, I've been overweight. Um, luckily, I was in really good shape before then. Yeah. So, so what you got to think about when you're overweight is a couple things, and that is your blood pressure. And number one is your blood pressure. So, you know, if you're overweight, you should have your blood pressure checked at least twice a year. Go to your physicals and get your blood pressure checked. And if it's high, get, do something about it. Right. And, you know, you start thinking about it. It's just, it's physics. It's it's like if your heart has to pump blood through twice as much mass, it has to work harder. And it's only got a certain service life. <laughs> so if you're taxing your heart all the time when you're in your, you know, when you're younger, it it it, it doesn't last as long. And you know, that's, that's basically, you know, I didn't have a heart attack. I had an aortic tear, which basically was a plumbing problem, but they actually had to detach my aorta from my heart and put a tube inside of it. And, you know, that's why it was such a big surgery because they had to unhook the blood flow to my brain for 30 minutes while they did it. And, and, um, it's, like I said, lucky, lucky guy. I'm lucky to be here. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. It's crazy. Anything new on the horizons or any, you know, do you have, uh, you guys are just, you know, business as usual at PCI. Um, you know, are you, is there anything special that you're besides the 50th, um, that you're working on? Uh, we're working on some new, uh, we're working on some different upgrades to our products right now. And we should have something soon that, that, uh, you know, it's, some, one one thing I don't want to really talk about yet, but but we're always developing and working. In fact, we've just in the last few years started a new position where we have a guy that all he does is work on new products, and um, you know we're coming out with our own clothing line um, for for racing shoes and gloves and a few other things. Uh, we we're you know we're trying to we're trying to modify our vendors to where we have vendors that get us stuff. And, and we're trying to always have a very big stock. That's one of the things during COVID. I always think of it this way. People are impatient nowadays. So if they call you up and want something and you don't have it, you might get lucky and get a call a second time. You will never get a call a third time. True. So, 
you got to actually have it in stock ready to go when they need it. And that's been the success of PCI. We carry more inventory than anybody else. In fact, I think we carry like six and a half million dollars worth of inventory at this time. Wow. And what is you, what do you, is it helmets that you think is the, the number one, what's your number one skew? The number one skew for us is our communication kit. So, you know, uh, we probably sell three to 500 systems a year, just like we used to into the off-road motorsports industry of people building new race cars. But this side-by-side phenomenon where people are going to the desert and side-by-sides and Polaris's and Can-Ams and all the other models that has really grown our business. I think we have like 700 power sports dealers now that, you know, put communications in UTVs and where we were predominantly on the West Coast, and we still are stronger on the West Coast to the day, we're growing nationwide as far as the, you know, side-by-side industry. Uh, it makes total sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in fact, I would say 80% of our business nowadays is is the side-by-side enthusiast over our racing. Wow. 80%, huh? Yeah. And, you know, that... One of the things that PCI I'm, I'm proud of too is that we've always gone and supported people at the races. And that has been a question mark for the last few years. Like, should we continue doing that? Because most of our business is not in the racing industry. Um, do we continue going to more races and snore races and all these smaller events? And uh, I've kind of put my foot down and said, yeah, guys, we got to keep doing it because that's where we came from. So, you know, we appreciate all the customers that support us and we hope that they appreciate the fact that we still go to a lot of races where, you know, people are like, Oh man, you make so much money at the races. I make, I don't make money at more races than I make money at. So (laughs) more than half the events PCI goes to are losing situations, but we still do it because we, you know, we appreciate our heritage and helping racers at the races. Excellent. Excellent. And I, can totally understand that. Well, if there's ever anything that we can do with uh, with for you with for low or our events or anything like that to help, you know, to help, let me know. Um, you know, I, that's one of the things I love about our industry is, you know, everybody wants most everybody wants to see each other succeed, even if you're competitive with them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it it, it doesn't. Competition breeds excellence is what I like to say. You know, the, 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 the cream of the crop always, right. You know, it, it always, you know, the, the best companies and the best people rise under competitive situations. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I'm, I've known you a long time, Rich, and I know, you know, I know we rock and all the, different places you've been and and you're always in the thick of things. And I always admired that even though you were a businessman and running events that I'd always see you at bigger events like King of the Hammers and such too. So, you know, you're definitely part of the culture. Well, thank you. Yeah, we, we try to be, um, here shortly. Um, we've, you know, we've taken on a partner with, with we rock who will be carrying the torch for us, um, and keeping the sport of rock crawling alive and, one of the things that I, I needed to do was to get away from the amount of, my body just wasn't allowing me to do the physical work, um, at 64 that I did at, 
at 44 and, uh, mm-hmm. or even at 54. So I want to calm that part of it down. Um, you know, the guy that's taken over Jake good is, is in his forties and, you know, same age I was when I started Cal rocks and, you know, he's, he's gung ho and he's, you know, he's all about the physical part of it and stuff, which is, which is phenomenal. But I want to start doing more social stuff and, you know, taking people to places that they want to go, you know, that they don't, that they don't know even about yet, but we're going to, you know, open it up to, you know, tours, that kind of thing. And, uh, it's just the, the reason is, is I don't want to leave the industry, but I, I need to find something that's a little less physical and, uh, cause it's just getting, you know, what used to take me two days to, to put together an event on the event site, it was taking me, you know, four and five. And so it was, uh, it was time to, to change, change directions for me, but I, I, never want to leave the off-road industry. So then excellent. Um, anything else that you want to talk about that we haven't hit on? Um, no, I think we hit on most everything. You know, my dad, my dad was inducted into the off-road hall of fame in 2013. Yes. Um, proud, proud son moment there. And, and, uh, I really, you know, I, people, people say, Hey, they appreciate me being the weatherman, but I mean, hell he did it for 30, 30, plus years. And I, I, I've only been doing it for a few in comparison. And, um, you know, I, uh, I would still rather be pushing that right pedal, but I, I do, I do find, uh, kind of a calling in, in the family thing as far as, as far as, uh, you know, being the weatherman, it, it is, you know, and, and my partner, Weathermax, Ralph Barrera, he makes it a lot easier. He he does a lot of the heavy lifting and allows us to do a really good job to help people. And, um, you know, I, I really think, you know, sticking with what started PCI and what, what, uh, has always been good to us. So we're here for you, the racers, and we appreciate you guys supporting us. Excellent. Excellent. Great segue. Um, I want to say thank you for, for coming on board and uh, spending some time and talking about um, your dad, yourself, and PCI. And we, uh, we hope you many more years. And I look forward to the future now being able to get away a little bit more often and maybe uh, getting to some of those races and, and spending some time. Maybe I'll come join you up on top of a mountain sometime. I'll bring my own sleeping yeah, bag and, you're, and you're wel- I don't you're, have to. You're welcome. You're welcome to. Yeah, I'd, I'd like. I that. just need to know. I need to know about a month ahead of time because I've got to get your name and your vehicle on a list. But other than that, it's 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 pretty. You know, it's it's pretty relaxing for the most part <laughs> until until race day goes chaotic and and you know then we usually sleep for a day afterwards. But right. <laughs> but um. Yeah, I've got yeah, a I got a cool adventure that, trailer. That's one thing that's gotten. <laughs> That's one thing that's gotten tougher for me is is the staying up all night factor it really oh. kicks a lot harder nowadays. <laughs> I understand. I I used to be able to drive. You know, when we were we'd go down and support teams down in Baja. You know, it, it, we'd be up for forty eight to fifty fifty two hours. I cannot do that any longer. I have to yeah. find a place to just crash and get some sleep. I cannot. I can't do it any longer. I get yeah, it. I have to do the same thing. All right, Scott. Thank you so much for coming on board, and uh, 
I'll see. I'll definitely see you soon. Thank you. All right, Rich. Good okay. talking to you. Bye for now. Bye.